I've got a question for you this morning. As we continue our series, as we continue to think about this word of influence, but the question I have for you this morning is what crisis are you facing today? What crisis are you facing today? Or who are you helping through a crisis? What does that look like for you? And what do I even mean by a crisis? Because not all crises are created equal. Not everybody sees things the same way. But three things for me stand out about a crisis. One is there's some problem. There's something that's happened that you can see. Perhaps new evidence has come to light. Perhaps there's a a new point for you. And this next part is key. And what you've currently, what you are currently doing is not working. And then third, there's a sense of urgency to the matter. If you use the word crisis, it could be a yellow light, it could be a red light, I mean, it could, but, but there's something that says, this is urgent, this is important, and I need to address this now. So we're going to get into the word, but I, I, I want everybody this morning, I need everybody this morning to think about what is that crisis that you're dealing with or you're helping somebody else through. I was reminded of just a few years ago, uh, some of you may have a financial crisis. I was thinking back to when shortly after Kim and I uh, got married back in the Purdue days, we had a financial crisis. This guy went to the ATM put the card in, there was no money left. The money we'd gotten from the wedding was all gone. That's what we were living off of, both in school. I'm in grad school. She's finishing up her nursing degree. And right then, that was a crisis. When you have no money, you are in crisis. What we were currently doing was not working. Part of that was whoever was keeping track of the checkbook back when you had those things, that was me, I wasn't a very good record keeper. Needed to to make a change and hand that over to somebody who was a little bit better. The other part of that was, as we dug a little bit deeper, oh, maybe we need to change our spending. Oh, maybe we need to, instead of this nice two-bedroom apartment, maybe we need to live in married student housing at Purdue. Some of you know those buildings. And even deeper than that, maybe there's something Money's always a key to the heart. Maybe there's some other things spiritually that we need to deal with. But for us, it was a financial crisis that we needed to address as soon as possible. So I don't know what the crisis is you're facing today. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's marriage. And something's happened, and you're at the end of your rope, and and there's I, I need some help now. Maybe it's a parenting issue. Maybe it has to do with your job, your school, career choices. Maybe it's a crisis of faith. Something that's happened and you're saying, can I really trust God now? Maybe it's a crisis of physical or mental health. And you're in a position where what has been working 
no longer works. Or maybe you finally now have eyes to see what you couldn't see before. So where is God in these crises and how can we grow through the crisis? So I'll invite you now to open up God's Word. I want you to go to the book of 1 Samuel. Because crisis is on the horizon in 1 Samuel. I want to back us up a little bit. We've been in this series called A Faith of Influence. And I'm going to suggest to us this morning that a crisis provides a great opportunity for us to grow in our influence, but I want to remind us of a few things about a faith of influence. Part of what we've been examining is what are the what are the inputs? What are those factors that are influencing us? A lot going on in the culture, a lot of things that can cause us to stray, can cause us to run away and not to God. So many positive things, but, but what is influencing us and then how is God shaping us so that we can use our faith story to influence others? So last week, we looked at this poignant, painful, but beautiful story of Hannah, who's in deep pain. She, she's, she's unable to have children. She's got this evil rival, Penina. And in the midst of this, we said last week that part of what Hannah challenges us to do or encourages us to do is to process your pain with the one who can provide you with lasting peace and eternal influence. Well, we're going to pick up this narrative today. We're going to fast forward, though, a little bit because this, this child, Samuel, has now grown up. It's a wonderful story. We're looking at eight scenes in First and Second Samuel, which really covers this period from uh, Hannah and the birth of Samuel all the way through the life of David. So we're looking at a few select scenes. And the scene today is going to come when Samuel is old, but some things have happened prior to that. We'll just pick it up. So Samuel's grown up. And he has served faithfully since he was a boy. He is kind of this transitional figure of the judges and really becomes the first prophet. And he will lead effectively. Very commendable man in the Old Testament. In chapter 7, we have seen that Samuel leads the people on a return to faithfulness to the Lord. He will lead them on a return to faithfulness, and he will lead them in victory over their arch enemy, the Philistines. Later we'll see David and Goliath and all that stuff, but right now we see that Samuel is leading the people of Israel, and this is a victorious time. They're in this battle, and it says that um, The Lord thundered with loud thunder and drew them into panic, and the Israelites defeated the Philistines. 
supernatural intervention of God, the good guys are winning. And in that time, Samuel does this. He picks up a stone and he says, I'm going to name this stone Ebenezer. Some of you know the old, the old hymn, I'm going to raise my Ebenezer. And what does Ebenezer mean? It is, a, it is a stone that commemorates God's intervention and God's help in a time of trial, in a time of crisis. So Samuel has done this. It, it is a wonderful example of his trust in God, his faithfulness, and of the people following him and placing their faith and trust in God. It's a beautiful story. It's a victorious story. But now a crisis is on the horizon. And this crisis is going to give us a window through which we can see some of our own crises and see how God might use that to grow us. So let me take you to 1 Samuel 8, and I'm going to read this story all the way through, and then we'll make some observations. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves." When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, 
listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Well, this is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. And I want to suggest to us this morning that it is a time of crisis. It is a scene of crisis. I want to start with the bottom line, and then we'll look at this from a few perspectives. But the bottom line I want to suggest to us this morning is that every crisis gives us a choice to be shaped by God to share the hope of Jesus with others. That every crisis gives us a choice to be shaped by God to share the hope of Jesus with others. We'll have to connect some dots to get there, but that is the bottom line I want to leave you with and challenge you to consider this morning. We're going to look at this narrative from three different perspectives, three different lenses. Then I'm going to lay out a little process for you, and then we'll have some time to pray at the end. The first perspective is that of the elders of Israel, the elders of Israel. Take you to verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. What a bold statement to say. You are old. Have you ever heard that? (laughs) You are old. I've heard that. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Samuel, you're old. You're not getting the job done anymore. You can't do it anymore. And your sons, the ones you've appointed. Now many say that maybe Samuel short-circuited the process here by appointing his sons. But we know this, I mean the narrator tells us that his sons are not good. They accept bribes, they're corrupt. So at one level, as the elders see this, their assessment of reality is reasonable. Eli, I'm sorry, Samuel, you're old. You've passed things on to your sons, but they're not getting the job done. If they had stopped there, things might have gone differently. But they come already with a solution in mind. It's not, oh, Samuel, what should we do now? But we've already got the solution. Give us a king to rule over us. Why? Because we've done all the research. We've looked back at what God has done, and we think that this is the effective way. No. We've looked out, and we see what all the other nations are doing. We want to be like them. It almost reads like they're in middle school or something, right? I want to follow the crowd. We want to be like everybody else. Now, it's an understandable motive. And it's a challenge to us as we see through the lens of the elders of Israel to ask ourselves the question, what are we allowing allowing 
into our lives to influence us? Are we trusting what's going on on the outside, or are we truly trusting God? So many times we'll enter into a crisis and already have the solution figured out. Sometimes as we try to help others through a crisis, we come with a solution before we go to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes we need to listen before we offer a solution. If you're like me, I've got all kinds of solutions to problems. Some of us need to turn that off or turn that down a little bit and just say, hey, let's, let's go to the Lord first. So that's the elder's perspective. Now let's look at, let's look at Samuel's perspective for a moment. Verse 6, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. This displeased Samuel. Samuel's old. He's walked with the Lord. Why would he be so displeased? We'll get all spiritual here in a second. But just the fact that they say you're old and you can't do it anymore? You've lost your influence? Have you experienced a loss of influence in your life? Some of you have. I know you have. For whatever reason that may be. But you feel less than because you've lost your influence. I would invite you to consider that. How do you respond when you feel like you've lost influence? And there's an additional displeasure For Samuel, it's the reality that his kids are not faithful. They haven't been obedient. Put yourself in Samuel's shoes. God's used you in a mighty way and will continue to use you in some amazing ways. But the ones you've handed things off to are not faithful. They are not walking in your ways. Some of you know that pain too. And that's just really hard. But how how do we respond when we are displeased? And this word, displeased, crushed. And the the, the Hebrew in that has to do with eyes. So it says, as I, I see things through my eyes, I am not pleased. It even reminds us of earlier on in Judges when God was displeased because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's a hint of this as we see Samuel. So what does he do? He takes his disappointment to the Lord. That's his natural response. There's the human side that's probably his ego, his pride, all that is hurt, is bruised. But his response is to take that to the Lord. What a model for us. What a model for us to take 
take your hurt, take your displeasure in the midst of crisis and simply take that to the Lord. Now let's look at this from God's perspective. Take you to verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people who are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Even when the Lord responds this way, can't you hear that he understands Samuel? He can feel that. He can feel that rejection. He says, no, no, no. <laughs> they haven't really rejected you. They've rejected me. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you now. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now many people, when they they look at this and they'll ask this big, deep theological question, was it God's will for there to be kings? And that's a complicated historical, theological question. One of the angles I would invite you to consider on that is God's response is always personal. He doesn't just give us a theological treatise on the sovereignty of God, but he actually personally intervenes. This is a personal response. This is a response that says, I know what they're going to do. I know how they're going to disobey. I know what this choice will lead to. I know what the consequences of your desire for a king will bring. God's saying, I know all that. God's sovereign. God knows the consequences of our choices. Sometimes I think about that as a parent. Have you ever, if you're a parent or grandparent, has your kid ever come to you and said they're going to do this? And you know you know what's going to happen. You know the consequences. You know what they're going to do. You know how it's not going to turn out well. But at some point, in love, you say, all right, if that's what you want to do, you're not a robot. You're going to do what you're going to do. God, at some level, is not endorsing their choice. There's some timing that's off, but he acknowledges where they're coming from, and will allow them to do what they're going to do. They've rejected me. There's painfulness, there's pain in that acknowledgement that the people have rejected. This is the, this is the same God who has just gone before them, has brought, has brought down thunder from heaven to win the battle. Have they now forgotten? And what do they ultimately want? Take you to verse 19. When the people refused to listen to Samuel, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king to rule over us. So we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us 
and catch this part, to go out before us and fight our battles. This is almost humorous if you look at it. Seriously? Seriously. Look back in the history of Israel, the history of God's intervention, God's miraculous hand. Now you want a human king because you don't trust me anymore. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Be careful what you ask for. But God hears the request, he warns them, but then ultimately he gives them what they ask for. What's fascinating to me, though, is we see this tension of God seeing his people, of hearing their request, knowing that they are off, but yet saying, I will give you what you want. I'll give you a king. And when you cry out, I'm not going to respond the way you want me to. Yet. Now I want to fast forward, though, about a thousand years later. We're in Ramah. About five miles from this place is a little town called Bethlehem. I want you to even picture that geography. Another crisis was brewing. All that stuff about kings had come to fruition. We'll get into David and, and, and Solomon and, and all those things, but we're fast-forwarding, and now there's King Herod who is in charge, and Herod is oppressing the people. And Herod has heard this rumor about this child who's been born in Bethlehem that they are naming as who's going to be a king. So Herod sees this clearly as a threat. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill every child two years and younger. Sometimes we overlook this part of the story. Because I'm going to protect my power. I'm in charge. Well, the angel of the Lord will appear to Joseph and say, hey, you got to get out of town. you got to go to Egypt. you got to get out of here. And, of course, that, that child, Jesus, will will grow up, and eventually his identity, his authority will become clear, and he will teach about the kingdom. Even as he first encounters his disciples, one of them, Nathaniel, would identify him as the king of Israel. Jesus would preach primarily about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Often he would refer to his his kingdom that was coming. He would eventually enter Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. And they would worship him as a king. The crowds would 
quote Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This triumphal entry, this idea of Jesus becoming the king who would fulfill the promise runs throughout the New Testament. Jesus would stand before Pontius Pilate. And what was at stake was authority and kingship. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate would ask him. Jesus responded, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Yes, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Of course, Jesus would go before the crowd and Pilate would say, behold your king. The crowd says, we have no king but Caesar. They would reject him as king. Friends, this morning as we reflect on whatever crisis we're in, we have an opportunity to trust. We have an opportunity to put our allegiance in Jesus, to put our true hearts, our true desires towards the one who died for us. We have a choice to make about who will worship We have a choice to make about who will truly be the king of our hearts. We have a choice of whom to listen to, of what voice of influence that we will pay attention to. So this morning, whatever your crisis is, whatever that may be, I want to invite you first to reflect personally. Three things. I would invite you to do is you consider your personal choice. The first is to see. And on the back of your prayer card this morning, I've got these steps with some questions. But first is to see. Do I see the crisis clearly? Am I bringing to bear the scriptures that I need to? Lord, give me eyes to see. And the second is to, to share to, with an open heart and an, open, an openness of spirit and mind and all that I am. Can I share that with the Lord? Do I have other people in my life with whom I can share and say, help me see what I don't see? Would you walk with me? Would you help me bear this burden? Maybe you're that person that somebody will go to. And are you ready to walk side by side and listen as they share? But then finally, we're called to to submit to say, I'm not looking at the outside world for all the solutions. I'm not going to trust in the sweetest frame of what I see in the mirror, but I'm going to submit that to Jesus in prayer, and I'm going to wait for his response before I act, before I come 
with my own solution. So that's the challenge for you personally. Now so often when we we hear the teachings of Jesus, we make personal application, which is wonderful. I'm all about that. I know people bring different crises into this place today. I want us to consider, though, a broader perspective. And we're going to spend some time now in prayer as we reflect on the words of Jesus about the kingdom. He says, my kingdom come. Or he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. That we would pray for the kingdom to come. Now I've invited some people to to join us as we pray, as we look at the crises of not just our own little worlds, but of the world itself. Time to pray. Time to look at beyond our families, beyond our church, beyond Greenwood, but actually into our world. So I'd invite you to, to go ahead and bow, bow your heads. And I've got some folks who are going to pray. Shirley's going to start us off by praying for some of our impact partners who are on the front lines of the crises in our world. And then we're going to pray for some other crises and in our world this morning. So would you bow your head and let us pray. Father, we lift our impact partners to you today. Be with each one of them and meet their needs physically, spiritually, emotionally. We especially pray for Jim and April Jurgensen and our team in Kenya. Please help them to show the children there at El Shaddai your love as they conduct Vacation Bible School this week. Be with Susie as she shares the healing power that you have with children who have deep emotional needs. We pray for the Williamsons in Taiwan as they minister to uniquely abled children and their families who often feel that they don't belong. We pray for the Living Stones Ministry in Brazil, providing love, education, and meals to kids in needy communities and pointing them to Jesus. Bless each of them today, Lord, that they would feel your goodness and mercy in their own lives and make you visible to the world around them. We pray in Jesus' name. Almighty God, we lift up all the leaders who uh, are governing people, and we pray for those in our cities, in our states, in the countries around us, in the world. We ask, Lord, that you would bring your divine wisdom to them as they lead. We pray, Lord, that their hearts would be burdened for what burdens you, the needy and the oppressed, those vulnerable in their communities. We pray for discernment. I ask, Lord, for strength for these leaders that they wouldn't grow weary. We pray for integrity. Lord, in all things, you are drawing all people nearer to you, and so I pray that they would see you as the Most High God. Lord, we think specifically of places right now experiencing unrest for those in the Ukraine. 
for those in Maui. We ask great things of a great and mighty God. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your guidance. We pray in particular, dear Lord, for uh, our schools, primary, secondary, and higher education. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we interact uh, with administrators, teachers, student support staff in those areas, that we, dear Lord, would be the salt of the earth. I pray, dear Lord, that as we interact with them, as we directly and indirectly, that our thoughts, our words, and deeds would testify to your transforming power for humanity. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would just allow your Holy Spirit to walk through us so that your light would shine in the hearts of all the folks, dear Lord, who work in those schools so that eventually they, Lord, would see you as the only way the only truth, and the only hope for their lives. Amen. Father, as we come to you this morning, we do come in the strong name of Jesus, praying that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So whatever it is, whatever systems are broken at the very core, whether it's governmental or educational or even the very creation itself that your word tells us is, is groaning. And we see consequences of destruction, of decay, whether it's wildfires, whether it's the inflammatory words of people. Whatever that may be, Lord, would your kingdom come? Would you bring your peace? Would you bring your truth? Would you truly lead us? And may we as a people, as we pray through our own crises that are within our own homes, also give us eyes to see and give us the power to be lights for a community and a world who desperately needs the hope of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.